0: If you haven't, go ahead and turn to Psalm 124. That's our psalm for this morning. I think in many ways, all of us want to live the good life. We all want to live a life of righteousness. We all want to live a noble life filled with virtue. But let me ask you a question. How do you know that you and your life, the things that you're for, the things that you're against, how do you know if you're going to be on the right side of history? Uh, I think in many ways this is not just a conversation that people are having locally. This is like the national conversation, right? Doesn't matter the cause, doesn't matter the perspective, doesn't matter the... What you're thinking, the question is almost framed nationally as, when time, when 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 history looks back on this moment, history, well, I'm going to be on the right side of it. Now, as you look at your life, as you look at the things that you're for, the things that you're against, the things that you want to be a part, that you just, you want to fight for in this world, How how do you know? You're going to be on the right side of history. When when history writes our experience, our lives, is it going to be kind to you? Now, a, a similar question was asked historically to Abraham Lincoln. Now, the question wasn't if Abraham Lincoln was going to be on the right side of history. It was a slightly different question, but it's basically the same question, only through a sort of theological lens. The question that was set before Abraham Lincoln in the context of the Civil War was this. A reporter of some sort asked Abraham Lincoln this question. Is God on the side of the North? This reporter asked Abraham Lincoln, is God on your side? Well, that question doesn't just come to presidents in time of war. That question comes to us all. Is God on our side? And if he were, how would you know if he was? This morning we're going to continue our sermon series in the Psalms of Ascent. Um, These are psalms that were collected intentionally by the author. And they were basically pilgrim songs. They were songs sung by pilgrims as they made their sort of pilgrimage to Jerusalem at various times throughout the year to celebrate things like the Passover and Pentecost. And today's psalm, a psalm of David, it's broken up actually very simply. I don't know if you noticed this when uh, Phil read it, but the psalm is broken up into two parts. In verses 1 to 5, and then verses 6 to 8. In verses 1 to 5, we have a description of what it would look like if God were not on our side. And then in verses 6 through 8, we have a description of what it looks like if God were on our side. So that's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at what what does it look like if God were on our side? And what would it look like if God were not? On our side. This is the big idea that should be right behind me. If God were not on our side, life would be terrifying. But if God is on our side, we have all the help we need. If God isn't on our side, it's, it's scary. It's terrifying. But if God is on our side, we have all the help that we need. All of us, I'm guessing, have wondered from time to time if God's in our corner, if God's on our side. This morning we're going to learn that God has a side. The question for all of us is, is that side our side? Psalm 124, if you look at that first verse, it's a psalm of David. David wrote it. Now, we don't know when he wrote it. We don't know sort of the context or, or the time in his life when he wrote it. But I think, honestly, that pretty much the context of his life or the, the, the sort of story, the experience that he was going through, that he would pen these words, I don't think it was like a just a moment in time. I mean, when you think about it, it's David's whole life, right? David always thought giants in his life, right? It wasn't just Goliath. If you just think about it, David was always the underdog, at least in principle. You could think of that when he fought Goliath. You could think of that just in his family, right? He wasn't the firstborn. You could think of it when he had, uh, he was like running for his life when King Saul was trying to murder him. Or you could think of 2 Samuel 5, right? Which Jonathan and Saul just, just have died, David is now anointed king. And the Philistines are like a sleeping dragon, right? Just ready to devour Israel and David. And they just wait for the the perfect time to attack. And when that time, David has to run and find refuge in a stronghold. David, if you think about his entire life from start to finish, he needs help. He's always in danger. So David writes this psalm. And it begins with a thought experiment. It's a terrifying thought experiment, but it's a thought experiment that I think would do us all good to just think about for a moment. And the thought experiment in verses 1 to 5 is, what would it look like? What would it feel like if God were not on our side? So go there, verse 1. We read, I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the... Oh, sorry. That's, that's the wrong psalm. I'm using a different Bible. Psalm 124. Surprise. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Does that sound right? All right. If it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Let Israel say, if it had not been the Lord who was on our side. Okay, what would it look like? What would it feel like if, if God were not on our side? Well, he's not going to tell us. And here he gives two terrifying images. We're going to look at each of them. Verse 3. If God were not on our side, then we would be swallowed up alive when their anger was kindled against us. That's the first image. The image is of, of, of a big animal. It, it, it's something swallowing up whole, something smaller. A few months ago, my family was coming to church, and my daughter put the dog in the crate. And the dog was whining like she always does. And so my daughter, being the sweet girl that she is, she got one of her favorite stuffed animals, an elephant named Trunky, and put it by the crate in order to comfort the dog, as this elephant had comforted her throughout the years. Family went to church. They got back, and I remember uh, my, my daughter stayed after to help us break down the church. And so when we got home, my wife said, Sadie, I, I have some tragic news for you. And Sadie then knew exactly what happened, ran upstairs. Trunky had been swallowed whole by the dog. Okay, The dog pulled the elephant in and not just decapitated Trunky's head, but swallowed much of trunky. That's the sort of image. The the image is of being swallowed whole. But but my dog's, if you've ever met my dog, my dog's cute. It's a miniature golden doodle, right? It's like a fluff ball with four legs. This image is more like a dragon. You ever read the book of Job? You, you, You get this idea of the Leviathan. It's a dragon. Dragons are scary. Remember uh, in J.R.R. Tolkien's The Hobbit, The Dragon Smog? This is how Tolkien describes the dragon. I think all dragons are a bit like this. Its armor is like tenfold shields, its teeth are swords, claws of spears, the shock of its tail is a thunderbolt, the wings a hurricane, its breath death. That's a dragon. So this first image is, is basically saying that if God is not on our side, it's like living next to a dragon. If the dragon gets bored, wants a snack, or just senses your presence, that dragon is going to devour you whole. Or maybe dragons aren't your thing. My kids have gotten into just watching like YouTube clips of animals And one time my son clicked on a python swallowing a young deer, right? And my two-year-old walked by and saw this. His eyes got big. He cried and ran away. I think I need to start saving up for counseling right now, right? Well, he had the right experience. That's terrifying to think through. I'm guessing my son said, if a python can do that to a deer, a python can do that to me. That's the point. Dragons, pythons, big animals swallowing something whole. That's terrifying and that's what it feels like. That's what it's like if God is not on our side. Talk about vulnerability. Now, the second image. Verse 4. Then the flood would have swept us away. The torrent would have gone over us. Then over us would have gone the raging waters. So, so the second image, it's, it's a flood, right? It's, it's like storm water. It's like a, a tsunami. It's, it's the, the fury and power of rushing water if you've ever been in like a, a river when the water is moving really fast. I have. Years ago, I was leading a men's ministry and I decided to, uh, that, that all the men were going to go river rafting. First mistake. There's going to be a lot of mistakes, okay? First mistake. And so we're there, and if you have never gone river rafting, when you get there, the rafting guide, like, goes through all the safety protocols, right? But classic me, you know, like, when you get on an airplane and the stewardess, you've heard it a thousand times, gives all the safety and you just, like, aren't paying attention. Well, that's me, as this rafting guide is, like, giving all the safety protocols. This is what you do when you fall out of the boat. Don't do this, do this. Well, I'm goofing off in the back. I'm not listening. i had been river rafting a few times I'll be fine. Second mistake, right? Well, we get in in various boats, and the boat I'm in is in the very, very back. So there's like multiple boats in front. And so we're going, we're having a good old time, and then the the rapids start picking up, and our rafting guide says, okay, really soon we're going to be at the most dangerous part of the river, right? It's called the toilet, and if you want to know why it's called the toilet, it's because a lot of rafts get flushed. That was, that's the image, right? So we're in the back again, and we're watching all of, you know, my, my, my friends, all, all these other members of, of the church I was pastoring, they're just going through, they're getting hit, and they're just like, like, you know, screaming out and just having so much fun. They all make it through it, and then there's some calm, and so they flip around to watch us, the last boat. Okay. Now, just spoiler alert, I survived this story, okay? So so we're going, and I'm not in the front, I'm in the middle of the boat. And someone got, you know, testosterone was like flowing hard. They, They started paddling really, really hard. And so we hit that toilet bowl sideways. And all I remember is hearing the rafting guide screaming as I was just like, you know, launched up in the air. We got flushed, all right? And when I mean we, I mean basically me. Like, lots of people stayed in the raft. I was out of the raft. And I remember thinking, because it was like April, and I remember a few things going through my mind as I hit the water. One, water is cold in Oregon in April. Two, what was it that I'm supposed to do now that I'm in the water? Right? And so I'm like, you know, the, the water's rushing. I'm in the water. I'm like, do I go to shore? Do I swim against? Do I swim with it? Do I go to the boat? All this stuff. Well, eventually I make it to the boat, but like the, the waters are going over my head. It's like sucking me under the raft, and no one can pull me into the raft. All along, the rafting guide is just screaming something, and I can't even hear what's going on. Right? If you've ever been river rafting or if you've ever been in water, you know that water is powerful, it's strong. And that's the image we get here, right? Life without God on our side is like drowning. It's like being caught in a tsunami. It's like being pulled away out to shore, out from shore. That's the image. I mean, these two images being swallowed whole and being kind of drowned by powerful water, it's terrifying. This, this, this is poetry. It's, it's poetry meant to be almost like a horror movie. It's meant to scare us. But actually, I think it gets sort of worse. These images actually get picked up elsewhere in your Bible. These are actually, if you go to the New Testament, these are actually um, sort of uh, poetic ways or description of Satan himself. So, so if you read descriptions in the New Testament of Satan, they're eerily similar to the language that we get in Psalm 124. Satan's like a torrent. He, 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 he's, he traps you, as we'll read later on in the psalm. He, he'll swallow you whole. So, so here's a psalm that reminds us that there is danger. Danger of all sorts. But there's also danger, capital D. Devil. That sort of danger. Now for David, the danger was the Philistines. The danger was apostasy. The danger was idolatry. But we all have dangers. There are various dangers in all of our lives. And I don't think the biggest danger, probably for Christians and the Christian church, I don't think the biggest dangers are things that outside of our church Those are dangerous. I don't think that's the most dangerous. I think the things that are most dangerous, the things that will pull us under, the things that will swallow us whole are the things within our own hearts. I don't think it's postmodernists or secularists or the atheists that pose the greatest threat. I think it's stuff in our own hearts. Things like discontentedness, covetedness, Lovelessness, those are the things that hiss because those are the things that I think Satan uses to lure Christians and trap Christians. And so this this sort of thought experiment in verses 1 through 5 is a sort of wake-up call that this is what it looks like if God is not on our side. That the author, David, he magnifies the danger. This is what it's like. This is what it's like if God's not in your corner. This is what it's like if God is not walking side by side with you. It's like being swallowed whole. It's like being washed away. So first, if God is not on our side, life would be terrifying. But now, let's second, let's consider if God is on our side. Let's look at what that would look like. Go to verse 6. In verse six, the tone shifts, doesn't it? In verse six, we, we, we read, "Blessed be the Lord, who has not given us as prey to their teeth. We have escaped like, like a bird from the snare of the fowlers. The snare is broken, and we have escaped." The, the first image is an animal ripping its prey, right? Think of like a a, a gazelle. In the mouth of a lion. The second image is of a bird that's trapped. But notice. Notice that that he starts off with praise. He says, blessed be the Lord. Why? Well, lions eat gazelles. But not this one, right? This gazelle gets away. Blessed be the Lord who has not given us as prey to their teeth. Birds can be trapped, but all this bird, this bird isn't trapped. All this bird is feeling the freedom and the the wind beneath its wings. And so David writes this. He writes that that what it's like when God is on your side, it's something like this. It's like the feeling the gazelle has when the lion misses or when the lion doesn't get its lunch. God on your side is the feeling a bird feels when it's not trapped, when it's freed. No wonder David breaks out in praise to God. He blesses him. After all, David's whole experience, he knows what it's like to have God on his side, doesn't he? He, he knows what it feels like to have enemies surround him. He, he knows what it looks like to if you were a betting man or woman to say, David, you're not going to get out of this one alive. He knows what that feels like, but he also knows that if God is on his side and God wants him to be free, God wants him to escape, that's exactly what will happen. Notice that David doesn't downplay the danger, does he? He doesn't say that there aren't things that have sharp teeth or that birds don't get trapped. He doesn't downplay the danger. Satan is real, isn't he? And yet he has confidence. But his confidence comes not by diminishing the danger, but by magnifying the helper. In sixth grade, I played on a particular AAU, AAU basketball team. We were the Japala Chili Peppers. Really cool name, all right? Chapala was a Mexican restaurant. So I played on this team, and we were the best. We were the best team. I went in every game, and if you would ask me, are you going to win this game? didn't matter who we played in Spokane, right? We played all the best teams. I would have said, we will win every single game, and we won every single game, all right? We were that good. Now, why were we that good? Is it because of my basketball ability? Heavens no. That's not where my confidence came in. Was it that we had really good coaches? We had good coaches. That's not where my confidence came from. Was it that we worked really hard? We were really disciplined? We had a better playbook? All those were partially true, but nope, that's not where my confidence came. My confidence was singular. I knew that we would win every single game because we had Sean Mallon on our team, who would go on to be one of the best basketball players in Spokane history. We had Sean Mullen. He was taller than any other person in AAU. All we had to do was get Sean Mullen the basketball, and the game was over. That's where my confidence would come. Well, when life is stable in our lives, when danger lurks, we look for someone to stable us. We look for someone to help us, to protect us. And David here tells us which direction to look. David points in the right direction. Look at the last verse, verse 8. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. That is where David's confidence was. All of David's life, he was in danger. But David knew where to look for help. Just think of the story of David and Goliath. Or, or th- think of the story of David versus the Philistines, or, or, or think of David's whole life. How was it that he was able to survive any of that? I mean, what accounted for his success? When he stood up to Goliath, why did he win? Was it he was just more courageous than everyone else? No, that's not the story. If you read Malcolm Gladwell's story, David and Goliath, I think Malcolm Gladwell gets it all wrong. The story of David and Goliath is not how disadvantages can be turned into advantages. That's not what the story is about. The story of David and Goliath, the story of David's whole life, isn't about David's leadership qualities. It's always about who's on David's team, who's on David's side, who fights for David, When David went out to fight Goliath, if he had just a blade of grass, Goliath would have been undone. It did not matter the weapon that David used. It mattered who was fighting for David, through David, with David. You see, the the whole story is not David versus Goliath. That's That's not the story. That's not how it goes. It's always Goliath versus God. That's what the story is all about. And David knows that his help comes not from his might, not from his ingenuity, not even from his sling. His help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. That's where our help comes from too. Whatever giants you face, and we all have giants in our lives, whatever danger that lurks seeking to devour us, Trap us, tempt us. God is our help. God is the one who is on our side. God is the one who takes a stand with us. So how how do you know if God is on your side? Well, God's always been on the side of his people. On the side of the church. From the dawn of time, God has said, these are my people And that's the side I'm on. I'm on the side of my people. Now, that doesn't mean that everything God's people or the church have done historically have been right and God approves of it. No, it just means that God has promised that he will redeem a people for himself. It's basically saying, when God is saying, I'm on your side, it's saying, I'm never going to leave you. I'm never going to abandon you. And that's where our confidence should come from. And then notice in verse 8 that David attaches help to the name of the Lord. Notice that? The the reason why David has confidence, and I think the reason all of us should have confidence, in the midst of danger is that you could know the name of the Lord. The the name of the Lord reminds us that, that God has actually revealed himself and given us his name. God is not a generic God. He's not a general God. He says, remember Exodus 3? He comes to Moses in a burning bush and says, this is my name. And if you want to have a covenant with me, if you want to have a relationship with me, you need to know my name. This is who I am. I tell you who I am. What I like, what I don't like, this is who I am. So we don't need mantras We don't need spiritual gurus telling us, oh, here are the secrets of the divine life. No, no, no. God has revealed his name. And when he reveals his name, it means that he's also revealing his character, who he is, his attributes, such that if you know his name, you can dial him quickly. Do you ever get those spam calls and people call and you know it's spam instantly because they don't know your name? The thing that throws you off is if they know your name, you're like, wait a second, right? That's intimate knowledge. There's power in God's name. Now, what is this name? What is this name whose help is attached, where we find our help? Well, it's, it's God's covenantal name, right? The name revealed to Moses back in Exodus 3. It's the name that shows up in English with caps lock, Lord. But there's another name that actually our text hints at. If you go back up to verses 1 and 2, there's a phrase that comes up twice. Had been on our side. Well, that phrase in the Hebrew is the past tense of a name in the Bible. A name the prophet Isaiah would later use. In his book, it's the name Emmanuel. God with us or God on our side. Now, theologically speaking, God has always been with his people, God's always been on their side. I mean, Israel's whole experience just think of Israel in the Old Testament they should have been wiped out time and time again. Proof of their existence is they're his people. But God's not just with us as an idea. God clothed that idea with flesh. God came. He sided with us in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jesus, fully God who came to live among us, to side with us, to help us in our trouble. He fights for us. How? Well, just look at his life. And look at his life and how it echoes Psalm 124. God is on our side by being swallowed up by an angry mob. This Emmanuel Jesus was swept away by a flood of persecution. This Emmanuel fell prey to the teeth and destruction of crucifixion, and he died on the cross. But this Emmanuel was not trapped. It looked like it, from the devil's perspective, that he'd finally trapped God's son as God's son died. But Jesus, at the moment of his death, was freer or as free as he'd ever been. I love how the, the early church father, Augustine, put it when he wrote this, that the cross of the Lord was the devil's mousetrap. The bait by which he was caught was the Lord's death. Our help, our helper comes to us. Our our Lord fights for us. He's on our side ultimately through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Have you ever wondered why Jesus came among us? Why why Jesus came to side with us? Why why Jesus is Emmanuel? Is it because he loves us? Is it because he wants to die in our place? Is it because he, he wants to take on the wrath of God for, for, for our sins? Well, yes to all of that. But 1 John chapter 3, verse 8 tells us and gives us another reason for why Jesus appeared. John writes these words, The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. The cross of the Lord was the devil's mousetrap. Meaning that because God is with us, because God is on our side, having died for us, having been vindicated in the resurrection, that means that Satan has no longer any rights on all those who have put their trust and faith in Jesus Christ. When we sin, our, our minds, our souls, you know, Satan comes to us And says, you sinned. You deserve hell. How do you respond? Martin Luther said, this is how you respond. He said, you respond by saying, yep, I do deserve hell and death and worse. But then you say, but I know the name upon which I'm saved. The name Emmanuel. And it's that name in which I call out for help. And having put my hope and faith and trust in that helper, well, you have no rights over me anymore. All of us need help. It's not just David. All of us need help. Ultimately, help from our sin, but then practically from day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year. We need help. We need more than 911. We need God. We need God to be on our side. We sang earlier, a mighty fortress is our God. I think in some ways, oh, that that song, theologically speaking, just the the lyrics, the words of it, fit this song so well. Right? The, The song starts, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. And then if you go to verse 3, that, 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 that third stanza, we sing these words. And though his and through this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God hath willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. Have you ever wondered what that one little word is? What is the one little word that at Satan he's doomed? It's the name in verse 8 here. It's the name of the Lord. It's Emmanuel. The name is Jesus. At the name of Jesus, Satan is doomed. I asked, uh, or I referred to a story at the beginning about Abraham Lincoln, who was asked if God was on his side. It's kind of a famous story, so you might know how Abraham Lincoln famously replied. This is what the president said. He said, my greatest concern, parentheses, is not if God is on my side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side. For God is always right. God has a side. Who sits on that side? Jesus Christ. So you want to be on the right side of history when all is said and done? Well, throw your lot in with Jesus Christ and you'll be just fine. Let's pray. Lord, you are a mighty fortress. Lord, all of us come facing various giants, things that just on the surface as we look at them seem so daunting. And so we cry out to you in unison, help us. Give us wisdom. Help us to trust you, to have confidence in you. Lord, we know that there's danger out there, but we also know that there is a, that that, that your son fights for us. Having fought the greatest foe, sin himself. And having defeated that foe, Lord, we are thankful that he is vindicated, and that we now receive that righteousness, his righteousness in our life. Give us greater confidence and trust that you are our helper. We pray this in your son's name. Amen.